You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Wednesday, April 18th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Professor Stephen Goldsmith, Daniel Paul Professor of the Practice of Government at Harvard Kennedy School, for discussion of his latest book, A New City OS, The Power of Open, Collaborative, and Distributed Governance. Emily Rube, a reporter for the New York Times and a 2018 Neiman Fellow, served as a respondent. Anthony Sage, Ash Center Director, Daewoo Professor of International Affairs, moderated. Okay, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you very much uh, for making time to come here. I know it's a busy part of the semester for many people, trying to wrap everything up. But uh, I think you're going to find it engaging and interesting. Uh, And one of the questions uh, that we think about when we're trying to think about governance and including the quality of governance is the question of how to think about the digital era that we're moving into, and also to think uh, constructively about the use of data, how we can apply uh, data to provide better open government, better issues, better transparency. And we're very lucky to have one of our colleagues, uh, Steve Goldsmith, who's been thinking uh, about all these challenges. As many of you know, uh, Steve uh, served as mayor of Indianapolis. In fact, I still use one of his teaching cases in my executive education programs, uh, and also, of course, the deputy mayor in New York. And so he brings to us in the Kennedy School a fantastic combination of trying to think uh, about how you engage with these challenges, but also from the experience of having run significant administrations. And I think you see that in the book by the way he's been able to combine uh, case studies and work uh, over a, a, a period of time and from a range of uh, different cities into uh, good examples that help us think more coherently uh, about those kinds of best practices. And then we have, uh, who will be engaging Steve in a conversation with us, is Emily Roop, who's been a reporter for the New York Times, but is currently with us as a fellow uh, with the Neiman uh, program here. So uh, please join me in welcoming the two of us, and we'll turn it over to Steve to begin the conversation. After that, we'll open it up for comments, questions, points uh, from the floor. Thanks, uh, Tony. Well, um, Emily's been trained by the New York Times, which means she's insisted I make no kind of (laughs) self-serving comments as I begin the presentation, which is throws me totally (laughs) off stride. Um, And I hope you all can see me without standing up, because I... um, so let me just let me just do this for a second, and then I'll just react to Emily's uh, questions, um, and, and not use the deck except maybe to respond to the questions. So, so the theory of the book, uh, just in brief, is that uh, we have, as you all know, a glittering array of technological tools that can dramatically change the way government works, and in fact, that array has gotten. Uh, much more robust in even the five or six years since I left working for Mike Bloomberg in New York City, and certainly in the two-plus decades since I was mayor of Indianapolis. Um, Yet, um, we have an operating system of government that was designed in the progressive era in the U.S. that most of the advanced civil service countries around the world utilize, 
that's based on a set of rules to control the conduct of public employees, right? So uh, uh, city mayors were corrupt um, and gave contracts to their friends and hired their buddies and traded uh, public resources for political favors, and so we wanted to make it difficult for one to abuse their discretion, so we set about making sure that public employees don't have any discretion, right? So they, and, and the definition of a high-performance public employee is one who complies with the rules, right? And that was a necessary trade-off, perhaps, in an in a analog period where you, you managed people with pieces of paper and you had hierarchies and bureaucracies and, 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 and the like. So um, think about it uh, in the following way, right? I mean, I wrote the book about a new operating system because as I was writing the book, trying to think of the name of the book, I got like my iOS update, like they were coming in like every 10 days there for a period of time, if you remember, right? So every 10 days I'm getting a new operating system for my phone and I'm talking about innovating in an operating system that is 125 years old, right? I mean, there weren't even, I don't know, there weren't even phones as far as I know. There certainly weren't any of the smartphones, you know, as along with the rest of the, so, so how do we then think about changing the, the, these rules for government to uh, properly take advantage of the abilities of public employees to solve problems? How do we measure outcomes instead of compliance? How do we think about systems instead of the vertical activities? How do we organize and listen collaboratively across sectors, public, nonprofit, for-profit and citizens and residents themselves. You know, uh, um, I don't know how many of you, I don't know what percentage of the apps you download that you discard because the user experience is awkward or bad, it doesn't suit your needs, right? Well, the whole concept that we design a government around the user experience was, is, just, is, is just not the way we think because we, our definition of efficiency in government is taking a vertical organization and making it more efficient. But even the definition of, of efficiency is a, is a bureaucratic, and I don't even mean that in a pejorative way, right? It's a bureaucratic, self-centered definition of efficiency. I run this agency, and I'm going to do my best to make it more efficient for you. Now, maybe, maybe the reason you don't have housing is because you're a battered spouse. Maybe the reason you don't have housing is because you don't have transportation. Maybe the reason you don't have housing is because you don't have a job. Maybe you don't, the reason you don't have housing is because you don't have child child care so you can't get to the job. Maybe it's the transit system is bad, but if you're in the housing department, that's, that's the hammer and nail, right? So now we can think systemically, systematically, and the same is true with regulation and the like. So I wrote the book with a few basic concepts about user experience, new operating system, acting in time instead of sequentially, and uh, that's the setup for the book. Now I, 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 will, I will go forward with whatever Emily is going to cross-examine me on, and it's going to be very uh, confusing because I'm, I'm going to try to find the right slide to answer the question, but I don't know the order of the question, so just uh, stand by. <laughs> wait, 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 first, first. Oh, so you guys, you, I, I know we have probably over 50% international students, but I'm from, I was mayor of Indianapolis, a state called Indiana, that's, for those of you who are geographically challenged, somewhere near Chicago, right? Uh, and in Indiana, there is a fictitious place uh, that is Pawnee, which is, um, uh, I've watched every show like three times. It's, it's the Indiana Parks Department. And, and its definition of citizen responsiveness is the following. How do we start this thing? Excuse me. 
There's a sign at Rampsit Park that says, do not drink the sprinkler water. So I made some tea with it, and now I have an infection. Sir? They turned it up. Sir, are, 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 are you listening to me, sir? Sir, I'm talking to you. Sir, sir, are you aware that there is waste in your water system? All right, so we're trying to do better than that. That's the thesis of the book. And now we'll turn it over to Emily. Thank you. Uh, so, Steve, you have been an early adopter of employing these technology solutions in government. Was it three decades? More or less, yes. And you spend a lot of time traveling to cities around the country, sort of as this roving catalyst for innovation. Which parts of government operations have you seen the most change in? For those of you who are courageous, there are two chairs in the front, um, if you want to sit. Um, so uh, which areas? Have I seen the most which, change in which government operations? You know, which departments, finance, mm -hmm. housing? Right. So um, I've never actually thought about the problem quite that way. So I, I th in in one sense, um, you've seen the most change in the most change, and we haven't gone very far, far in mobility and transportation. Right, because the disruptors are so out there, right? Uh, TNCs and ways and, uh, and um, GP GPSs in every taxi meter and GPSs in every bus. And so the, the and, and just the, the, you know, the standardization of when will your bus get there on time at your stop. So the disruptions are huge. It also means there's still a, a really long way to go. A second way to think about this is uh, emerging interventions in social services where um, uh, young adults in trouble or an, uh, a person who's addicted uh, operates in a system where there are multiple government agencies, multiple factors, and so now we have the ability to mine data more broadly, organize it, and deliver it to a caseworker who, who can engage. So. I think the, the way I would respond would be the changes are greatest where people think about the problem horizontally and how to use data across multiple, uh, multiple issues, A, and then B, um, this is a little more arcane, but you know, government got very good at using computers for transaction processing. You know, how do you get your food stamps? How do you, how do you process your payment? And it never until the last couple years thought about all of the information that's locked into those transaction systems and how to utilize it. So we're also beginning to see change where people are using data analytics against those transaction systems to look at outliers and the like. Mm -hmm. You talk about the Amazoning of government. Can you, what do you mean by that? Can you explain? I feel like I should means? stand, but then you're sitting and I can't quite figure out what you're doing. <laughs> There's actually somebody in the back row straining to see me, which is very exciting for me as a politician. Um, <laughs> sit up. Um, uh, so, let, so let's think about this, uh, Emily's question about the Amazoning of government. I mean, there, there is really, so we have, this, um, we have this increasing expectation differential between how you think you're going to be treated by your commercial retailer slash Amazon and how you're treated by Ron Swanson, right? They're just, they don't feel like they're the same. 
Um, and they're not the same for a number of reasons. They're not the same because um, the, the government services are not yet personalized. They're not the same because um, you don't often have a, a choice of channel, right? You want a license walk-in, right? You have a problem call-in, unless you're in Boston where you can app-in. And then, and then what if you don't want to get your driver's license from the Massachusetts Motor Vehicles Department? What if you want to get it from your local car dealer? And, uh, so, so, so what, what the Amazoning of government would mean is that we would begin to personalize services. We'd let, let people opt into their own registrations, right? We would, instead of saying to them, you're dog license, car license is outdated, that you would receive a text 30 days in advance that says check here, right? We would be, we'd be able to give uh, residents choices of channels, right? You can, you can choose the channel. It's an, uh, it's an omni-channel choice. So it's personalized, it's omni-channel, it's individualized if you wish it to be. And that, and that most people don't want to have a warm and fuzzy relationship with their government, right? They just want to get the services they need in the least difficult way to do it. And, and that's kind of the Amazoning of government, which is how to reduce the transaction costs of dealing with government, how to get the personalization of the information you want. When I was deputy mayor of New York, we had 30 million phone calls to 311 a year. 60% of them were information requests. And most of the information requests were do I have to move my car to the other side of the street for street cleaning, uh, opposite side uh, parking? The same question every day, hundreds of thousands of them, right? And I just wanted to say, can we just register folks? If, if, they, go, if they don't believe the radio, just register and we'll, give them, we'll send them a text every morning. Move your car, don't move your car, right? It's pretty simple. And, and the cost, the customer service goes way up and the cost from government goes way down. And so that's what I mean by the Amazoning of government. Right, right. And making it more responsive to individuals um, and also um, creating more engagement, citizen engagement. This is a big part of your book. Um, and actually, it's interesting, there are a lot of parallels with the journalism industry yeah. um, in terms of, uh, well, management, but also how we have incorporated more of our readers in our own reporting. Um, and so in a lot of the same ways, um, you know, we are, um, trying to get out ahead and partner and work closely with our citizens because we are also, like government, um, trying to maintain that public right. trust. Um, and so, you know, um, how does this new way of operating right. sort of encourage more citizen yep. participation? So I think this is a, a, a really terrific framing of this question, which is, um, and I do think that I mean, there's obviously a lot of ways that you, the government and the journalism are different, but there are a lot of ways that are actually the same. So basically the question is, how do you listen and how do you learn? How do you curate? And um, we've got ourselves into a situation in government where the definition of professionalism is, I go to the Kennedy School, I get a really good education, I join the transportation department, and 20 years later I'm the elite transportation planner and therefore, I really know what's in everybody else's best interest, right? I've been well-educated. I've got a lot of data. I'm inside government. I can tell you what you need. Well, but the new definition, right, of professionalism is one where you have a set of skills that allows you to understand the issue, but that also understands, allows you to, to listen in a different way. Um, and so um, that means that um, how we 
Well, one more kind of anecdote, right? So here's the definition of community engagement, and I've, I wish we had another Ron. I, there's another great Ron Swanson one of these, <laughs> right? Which is, you um, you decide what you want to do with your planning department. Let's say you're the mayor. You go to a community meeting. People yell at you for an hour, right? They, with no real dialogue, right? They just they yell at you because they for whatever reason. And then you go off and do what you're going to do anyway. But you check the box because you've had community engagement, right? Mm -hmm. So um, like Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm not sure whether, how to respond to your comment, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the uh, how I respond, I would offend somebody. <laughs> um, so so now the question becomes like in in your journalism question. You know, how do you how do you raise the question? How do you listen to it? And and both social sentiment mining and allowing people to socially engage means you can reach more people, not everyone, but more people. They can they can talk to each other as well as talk to you, and you can learn from that conversation and incorporate it in your solution. Those skills are not too prevalent in government yet, but that is the definition of of, of true responsiveness in the future. Well, you talk a lot about, in, like in journalism, we think about user experience. Um, and we think about, you know, sort of packaging stories in ways that meet people where they are. So can you maybe give us, walk us through maybe an example. There are some great ones in Chicago and, and or Kansas about how they're actually incorporating um, user design and also just thinking about um, the end user, which is the citizen. Finally, I can use some of my slides. Uh, so there's a, a couple, there's lots of ways to answer Emily's question. Um, first of all, let's, let's assume that government has a responsibility to affirmatively reach out to uh, hear voices that are um, not normally prevalent, right? So how do you, how do you ask an underserved community a question, right? And the answer here may be, please SMS and text in, was your workforce voucher successful? Was your reading program for your child at work, right? Were, were you, were, were, was, the, was the public employee courteous in the way he, he or she treated you, right? So, so that would be one way to think about engagement, right? Another would be, um, this is, um, so the qu another question would be, how do you use AR and AI tools, augmented reality tools, to actually inform the conversation? This is from Philadelphia, and that blue building is a proposed building, right? And these tools are now accessible to community groups, right? Not, not everybody could use a tool, but a community group could use a tool. And, the and you could then ask, okay, on June 11th at 3 in the afternoon, what's the shadow going to be from this building? Or what's the shadow going to be if I move down the size of the building, right? So instead of conversations which envision the worst about the future, right, we can actually then um, envision the future and get real feedback. So there, there are ways then to um, there are ways then to uh, have the engagement conversation, um, and and some of those, like in your question um, about Chicago, would mean that uh, Chicago has through uh, its um, Community Foundation funded a, a third-party intermediary, Smart Chicago, that's re responsible for helping the data literacy training and support of not NGOs in Chicago. Right? Because one of the goals here, it seems to me, and I think I, I think I would appreciate this even if I were still mayor, is that you want people to be virtually marching on City Hall, to care enough about what's happening in City Hall that they can express themselves. 
So um, I don't know if we've got it here, but for example, let me see if it's here. This is the danger of having a moderator. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, so, I don't know whether we'll go through this all or not, but um, yeah, that's good enough. So, so another way to think about this is um, uh, Los Angeles got embarrassed because the data visualization showed that the quality of city services in sanitation was predictably much better in wealthy neighborhoods, right? But then you could see it on the map, right? And the LA Times saw it on the map. And the mayor, to his credit, saw it in the LA Times and fixed it, or tried to fix it, right? And tried to figure out the reasons for it. So, um, so uh, um, we can use the, like the Chicago, Smart Chicago, platform to educate community leaders and how to see what's happening in their community, how to identify trends, how to figure out where the blighted homes are, how to get in front of issues, how to hold the city responsible. And all of those tools are helpful, but the city has to be, or the state has to be truly committed to open data because you can't be just for open data when it makes you look good, right? Because that's obviously not quite the definition of open. And there's always somebody like you looking over my shoulder, right? So that's a problem as well. Uh, well, how um, how are you, you know, dealing, or how are you thinking about um, uh, inclusion and and, and equality? Um, you know, what are cities doing to to make sure that certain communities, right. you know, like elderly communities or uh, communities that lack, you know, high speed internet, are, you know, aren't getting left behind? Right. So. Um a few thoughts here. One, that let me start with being defensive and then I'll finish being offensive. The current pre-digital world is not particularly equitable either, right? It's not like when I was mayor or deputy mayor that the 311 phone calls to pick up the trash in my neighborhood were equally arrayed across all neighborhoods, right? Folks who are better educated, who the speak English side. better, right? The Upper East Side. Yeah, so the Upper East Side, was, they were the loudest and they got the best service, right? So, um, uh, without any char characterization involved there. But, <laughs> um, uh, so, let's start with that concept, right? So, obviously, the digital tools could amplify or mitigate that problem, depending on how you thought about the use of the tools. Um, and uh, so, one way to think about Emily's question is um, uh, the digital divide question. And uh, it's not so much that uh, stressed communities lack smartphone penetration, they lack data plan access in a, in a regular way. And so, this is not a full solution, but uh, those of you who've been to New York recently have seen these uh, kiosks that are about five feet tall that have taken the place of the of the phone booths, right? Mm -hmm. And those are, you know, you, a lot of people don't like the advertising and a few other things associated <laughs> with them. Too many young adults using them for free pornography, for example, as exposed <laughs> by the New York Times, but that's just a different story. Um, uh, but what they do is they use ad revenues to support free gigabit wireless access eventually in every borough of New York City. 
right? So one question is how do we drive down the cost of data? Another question which Boston has done a really nice job or is doing a nice job on is saying, okay, uh, at least uh, uh, the national government hasn't preempted totally the conversation about where 5G cells go for uh, increased access. So, so it's reasonable to say you want to, you, AT&T or Verizon, you want to come into my community with a fancy uh, cell. We want your 5G small cell in our community, but not just in the wealthy neighborhoods. We want it in every neighborhood, right? And that's not the way that high-speed fiber rolled out in places. It went to where it was most productive. So, so I think that the government has a responsibility. The thing that I would caution against I learned this really early in my public career 30 years ago, is there's, there's a stereotype that if you're poor, you're technologically illiterate, and so we're going to move on. And that, that says, well, we know you're getting really bad service, and we're, that's too bad because we can't do anything about it because you're not technologically savvy. Some of, there's a few folks here that, that in my class and some that in Mitch Weiss's class where, he, where, he, where we taught the Propel case about food stamp sign up in California. And in my experience, I was involved in, in child support enforcement and working with welfare moms, is that, that there are tools with, with, and there's a lot of pent-up demand for taking advantage of those tools. And if government thinks about how technology can reduce the difficulties of dealing with government, then there, there's a, a, a broad array. So get over the stereotypes, use kind of cross-subsidies in your system and then kind of affirmatively reach out to those communities that are underserved, and I think one can make a difference. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, as a citizen, you know, I am all about, you know, using technology to, um, you know, prevent uh, instances of, of domestic violence or to track pollution um, and, to, and to prevent, <laughs> you know, um, deaths, uh, unnecessary deaths um, by, uh, by fire. Um, but, you know, knowing that there are sensors on lampposts now and in the subway and even on my phone, you know, it's starting to feel a little Orwellian. Um, you know, so I want to, you know, when you are um, convening these, these meetings with, you know, chief data officers, we had um, Lillian, um, Coral, who, who, you know, encapsulated this tension between, you know, wanting to make progress um, yep. and in putting the data out there and doing it right. Um, and so, you know, it's, there, there are, there's, there's a tension there. So when you're, when you're having, convening these discussions, um, especially given that our country's privacy laws are lagging, uh, I guess it's, that's kind of an understatement, um, or non-existent, um, you know, how, how are you convening these conversations around privacy? Right. So um, there's two sides to every one of these coins, and not to acknowledge that is a mistake, right? Um, I mean, if we want to run a little uh, uh, mental exercise, we could say uh, what Cambridge Analytica did with Facebook is really bad, what if they'd done it to solve an important social problem is it for government? Is, would that be okay? Well, it still feels a little creepy, right? So, um, the, but any of the, the most sophisticated tools that solve the most intractable problems carry with it serious privacy and security problems. Well, we'll talk about security in a and minute. Security is even, even, yes. security is maybe even more difficult. Yes. So I would, I would, I would, 
uh, split the privacy conversation into two buckets. One bucket that deals with uh, caseworkers who have a responsibility um, with respect to preventing child abuse or delivering a social program, how much information she should have in her ability to solve that problem. And um, uh, none of these things is easy, but I think the number of folks who would be helped by making her, the caseworker, smarter exceed the risks on the privacy side, and we need to ensure that only she and her supervisor can get access to that information. So that, is, that means to me, you know, what, what are the rules around the information? How long is the information archived? Uh, what are the forensic uh, in, uh, auditing tools to make sure that there's no leakage in that? Kind of how secure is that privacy? So that's one set of issues. It's not without its own set of problems, but that's one set of issues. Another set of issues is, um, I'm in New York City. I walk by one of those kiosks, and it takes my... Uh, phone data matches it to um, third-party records and knows who I am, right? That feels like a really bad thing. And so, um, so, you, so before we get to kind of what the rules are on Facebook, because that's, you know, that's a world that I'm not, that's a different world, I would say that if the city, if the city's easements are used, right, then the city should insist on a set of rules about uh, ownership of the information, anonymity of the information, uh, protection of the information, because there's a, I can move traffic more quickly by knowing how many people are on the street. I can protect pedestrians from Vision Zero by knowing how long it takes them to cross the street. I can use their cell phone data to do all that, but, but you really don't want me to know that it's you, I mean, just, just in general, right? So. So I think that I would divide the conversation between the two, make sure there's anonymity in one, and make sure there's protection on the other. What is the, is there a fiduciary duty um, that the city has to protect this information? I never used the, I never heard the word fiduciary. No, I'm not, I or think is it's there, really or what are the responsibilities, question. yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, can I come back in a couple yeah. of days on the fiduciary yeah, question? Sure. Um, yeah. They, uh, I think the city has a responsibility when it uses its public easements, sidewalks and street lights and smart furniture and kiosks to um, develop a set of rules that it expects the third-party vendors to abide by. I mean, I think generally, it's not clear where this set is, but if the city has either a regulatory function, Uber, TNCs, or a licensing function in terms of easements, then I think it has a responsibility to make sure that the data that's collected as a result of that permission is protected. So I do think it has responsibilities. Now, those may be fiduciary responsibilities. I don't think about that, but definitely there are responsibilities. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, um, let's talk about security for a minute. So, so all of these smart cities, really smart, but what happens yeah. when somebody takes over the smarts? Um, as has happened that we saw in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago. People couldn't pay their water bills. They, um, you know, the Wi-Fi went down at the airport. I mean, you know, government workers couldn't even log in. There was an instance in Dallas. There were hackers, I guess, set off a tornado sirens in the middle of the night. Um, so, you know, open yeah. governance is, is, is this, uh, it's a wonderful idea, but it also creates these 
you know, vulnerabilities? You know, how, how are you convening these conversations around, you know, security? And, or how are, are you going to be using the Atlanta situation um, perhaps as a case study and what, what to do, what not to do? Yeah, it's clearer what not to do than it is what to do. Um, <laughs> so I was at the CES show in Las Vegas, you know, the big computer show, and, um, uh, you know, like acre after acre was autonomous vehicles. I mean, like every, the whole show was like autonomous vehicles. And then there was an Israeli security company that said, I come over to our booth, I want to show you something. So I went over there, and they had laid out a, a car, uh, uh, the engineering part of a car. And they had identified 27, I think it was, places of potential hacking entry into the car that would uh, control the, 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 uh, the velocity of the car, that control the steering of the car, that would uh, control the way the car connected to the uh, IoT infrastructure, therefore could affect the IoT. Each one of those is a point of vulnerability, right? And they're going to be connected to the infrastructure that's going to control not just the AVs, but just, you know, the street lights or, I mean, you, and, and um, there are no current uh, interoperable protocols for that security, right? What you need to connect to our grid, what you need that for permission if your AV is going to be there, let alone just the, the, the non-AV car has its own set of problems now as well. Um, so when I say, so it's clear to me that that's the wrong answer, and that there's a lot of privacy needed, and and I, I can't answer the technical issue. We're trying to convene here chief data officers in a program we run here at Ash Center to to begin to think about what are the platform requirements, mm -hmm. interoperability, security, and privacy that should be that cities across the world and the country should take up, and so that conversation is ongoing. Or, or you know. Are there, you know, preventative measures or are there, you know, policies that, that could be implemented? Yeah, I think the policies would be, see, so the thing, the reason I have trouble answer, difficulty answering your question is I don't, I, there's a technical solution and then there's a policy solution. Right. Yeah. And it seems to me the policy solution says the, these are the policies you have to abide by in order to, to connect to our grid, to be on our mm -hmm. streets with yeah. your whatever. Uh, and I think the same should apply with your smart furniture, meaning if you sit down, if one of you sits down at a transit stop and connects to the smart bus shelter or you're connecting to the smart street light or because, I mean, everything is going to be part of that grid. So I think the policies need to be clear that if you're connecting to that grid, here are the requirements. Now, what the technical answer is to that uh, is a little bit beyond me. Um, I, I just have a couple more questions, but I do want to make sure that we open it up um, so that people have a chance to get at the professor. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> better way to this say this is that. transparency. Honestly, yeah. This is this is what we're here All for. Right. Um, so you know the role of, of mayors, um, you know, as you know from your own experience, you know, government leaders are often consumed with these, you know, big hulking problems, pressing issues about, you know, affordable housing and immigration, um, storm management. Um, you know, so what, what does it take for a government leader today to sort of get a, out ahead of, of these very ambitious um, ideals um, and also to change the culture, which right. you alluded to earlier, uh, Ron Swanson, um, 
And so what, what are you, you know, um, what, what does it take and, and also who are you looking at or who is, who, who is embodying? Maybe you can give us an example of, of um, this kind of leadership mm -hmm. that's needed. It t everything takes leadership. Um, so we can think about this in several different ways. One is that um, governments operate by a set of routines, which means they do a lot of manufacturing of the same response, regardless of whether you want two units of it and you want no units of it. I've got one unit for you and one unit. I'm going to pick up your trash can and pick up your trash can. I'm where I'm going to sign cases on the basis that they come in. And so what, the, what leadership would mean, or could mean, is to say the following. We're going to deliver the highest quality services we can in our community with the dollars that are available. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to begin to identify outliers where, where we could repurpose dollars that are being spent over here to solve more critical problems. How we can use the data to identify predictors of future uh, uh, um, adverse circumstances, right? When does a water turn off indicate there's going to be a vacant house? When does a broken arm in, uh, for the, the third sibling represent a future, right? So, so one way to think about the, the answer to your question is I'm a leader and I'm going to insist on higher quality standards. Another way to think about the answer to your question is I'm a leader and I'm going to challenge every one of the performance metrics I used in my stat performance program today to say, is this, is this stat an activity or is it an output or outcome? Are we really measuring something that makes a difference? And, and, and if we are, then how are we allocating our resources around that, right? So, and that would mean that big data would be able to say, this activity is not actually producing this outcome. And there's plenty of examples. Like, like I was guilty of this in New York City. We measured everything. We measured 10 times more stuff than we, used, than we needed to, and half of that was made no sense to measure at all, actually. So it looked pretty, and it was a good report. Um, that's another third way to think about this is, look, I'm going to create a culture in my enterprise, my public enterprise, so that people who work here feel when they go to work every day they're making a difference in the lives of someone else, which means I'm going to take the machines and the bots, I'm going to offload the commodity work, I'm going to get all that paper-filling stuff out of your way, I'm, and I'm going to turn your time over to solving a problem. Now, you can do this in any circumstance. Think 311. Instead of having a 311 call center answer every phone call, Honestly, Siri and Alexa ought to answer 80% of the phone calls. And they could answer them better and faster. I don't mean because the people are bad. It's because the data, they could, they could learn the data faster and respond. And then take all that extra time and say, okay, solve that person's problem. They have a very serious multidimensional problem. Just spend some time with them, right? So, so, so that would be another thing I would, would, would do as a leader. And the final thing I would do is say, look, um, um, uh, democracies in particular depend upon the trust of their uh, citizens. And how do we create trust? We create trust through responsiveness. We, and how do we create responsiveness? It means because we learn quicker and we act better and we do it in a more personalized way. And so I think all of those would be part of what a, a leader would say he or she is doing in order to respond to their community. Um, I love the 311 example um, because now New York City is using artificial intelligence, or will be, will be. Um, using artificial intelligence. Maybe you can talk about that, that, but also in the context of, you know, as a citizen, what is the most exciting thing that is going to happen, um, you know, in terms of uh, responsiveness and city, uh, citizen engagement or, um, you know, 
technological advancements in cities in the next five years. Yeah. But first, tell us about the three one one, which you were a part of. Yeah. So. Um, the Innovations in American Government program that uh, Tony and I operate here gave an award back in like 1850 or something <laughs> to uh, <laughs> Chicago and Baltimore for setting up the centralized call center. It was a long time ago, wasn't that long ago. And um, the big breakthrough here was we're going to centralize the places, uh, centralize a place you can call for city services. This doesn't seem like such a big breakthrough today, but it was a big breakthrough back then. Right, and now, uh, and so, and as I mentioned before, uh, 311 reported to me when I was in New York City and had a lot of well, really well-intentioned people running faster and faster in place, right? More and more calls, same number of people. How fast can I get through this and get on to the next thing? Um, the new, and that, was, and that was at the beginning of what many of you know is the, the first really good citizen app in the country was Boston's app, and it had a fairly high take-up rate compared to New York City. So the question then became, you know, how do you offload the phone calls into texting, for example? How do you offload them into apps? But then what the new 311 does is it says, well, we're not a call center anymore. That's ridiculous. We're a platform for citizen engagement. We're going to allow citizens to understand the problems in their neighborhood. We're going to visualize those problems. We're going to allow citizens, if they wish to be identified, to be identified to their neighbors. We're going to personalize the services that go back out to them. And then even more than that, right, we're going to use Watson and IBM to read all of our data and, t and think about this. Should, should the definition of responsiveness in government be that, that you fill the same pothole really quickly ten times in a row, right? And so you get measured on how fast you fill the pothole. Maybe it's to say to Watson, could you really study the water data, the drainage data, uh, uh, maybe even look at the weather data, and then look at the most frequent potholes and, and then predict for us where those are, we're going to go figure out that, we're going to take your information, we're going to solve that problem, right? So, so we're going to prevent the pothole before it begins. So having Watson actually read all that data and then come up with kind of not just the outliers but the causal effects of the outliers could, could lead to great breakthroughs. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty upbeat about, it's a little creepy, but like we said before, you know, uh, I believe in creepy efficiency. <laughs> there, that's a quote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, we've covered a lot of ground with Emily and Steve. We've had horizontal connectivity. We've had the personalizing of government services under Amazoning. We've got inclusion and equality uh, balances there. We've got the questions of trade-off, security, uh, privacy, and responsiveness in city engagement, just to name a few of the things we discovered. So um, just so as everybody's aware, this will be video uh, audio recorded, and it will be later placed on the um, Can I strike the on our website. So, uh, <laughs> so this is your chance for a moment of fame. So if you have a question, please let us know who you are. Um, and if it's a question, please be sure it ends with a question mark. And uh, the floor is now open for anybody who has uh, comments or preferably questions. Yes, there's a lady here. So let us know who you are, and then... Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Wen Li. I'm from China. Um, uh, thanks for sharing. And um, we got a lot of information about how the government serves the citizens uh, with te technology and uh, policy. So my question is, um, now in China, we are planning a brand new ci city called Xiong'an. So as a governor and scholar, um, 
uh, based on your experience and research, if you were asked to give like three pieces of advice um, to the planning um, of Xiongwan City, uh, this question actually goes to Connie and Steve at the same time. <laughs> so what are the advices you would give um, in order that in the later governance of the city, it, it goes smoother and uh, better serve the citizens? Thank you. With the so question. So it goes to Tony and then Steve, I heard. Oh, I, I thought I heard <laughs> Steve <laughs> Well, I think the most important thing is uh, it should be um, for people. I mean, a lot of the cities in China are being built first and then people are being moved in subsequently. And that has tended to be not just a feature in, in China, but in many countries. Uh, roads are laid, buildings are laid out, and then people are thought about subsequently. I think what you have is a great opportunity with planning a new center is to think about what is the kind of environment that citizens really would enjoy and would grow up in. And that might be very different from a planner's dream. Uh, it, would, it would respond to questions about how you think about transportation. Do you want it to be a car-driven city? Or do you want it to be a city uh, which is focused on the way people can move around, the way they can experience the facilities? And I think the other thing to make sure is that as the cities developed, um, already the kinds of things that citizens will need are there. Not just the schools, the hospitals, but also uh, restaurants and kind of other facilities where people can interact together, green spaces and so forth. And I remember when I lived in the northeast of uh, England, there was a very famous project called the Biker Wall, where a lot of people moved into a new housing development. And one of the things they discovered is if you look around where people have lived for a lot of time, there's a lot of redundancy <coughs> there. So there's the things that have no meaning, no value, they're just there. And they put a lot of things like that in the public spaces. And people responded to it extremely well. And, uh, they also made sure the buildings weren't so high-rise that you got alienation from the public space below. So that's just a few things. Steve, you have more experience than I do. Well, let's, uh, let's develop the same theme. Um, one of the dangers in uh, public officials dedicated to data is they are dedicated for data for data purposes, which doesn't get you very far. So I like the... I would start first with what are you trying to accomplish, right? You're trying to design uh, uh, better public spaces. Are you trying to move traffic better? What, what problem are you trying to solve? And then I would do that design effort with actually people who are involved. I mean, not, not just the professionals, but the folks who are going to live in the city. Um, that's one thing. The second thing I would do is to say, let's map uh, the co more complex systems that you're going to be affecting. So you can think about mm -hmm. transportation. But transportation is transportation and biking and where the shared bikes will be parked and whether the app for the bikes works in the elevators. And I mean, so it's, so it's a digital, if I were going to be a digital experience, I would de design that experience around a person's, a, a personas, right, different personas as contrasted to in the abstract, right? Mm. And, and so, and then third, I would think about what are the most frequent 
problems my government will be asked to solve. You know, are they rain problems? Are they housing problems? Are you know? And then I would, I would, I would frame a set of data solutions that would empower public employees in those areas as a priority. Um, so I, I think I would, I would, I would do it like that. And I would, I would design it collaboratively. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if you invite Steve to be the mayor. Uh, hi, Professor. Thank you for the uh, wonderful talk. My name is King Sering, and I'm a fellow here at the Ash Center. I have a slightly different uh, perspective question, having just been to the writing workshop with uh, Jeff Sigler. <laughs> so my question is, what has actually inspired you to come up with this book? Is it meant to drive policy changes that would probably open up opportunities for IT startups, or is there something compelling from your own personal experience as a mayor? Well, as um, Emily uh, annoyingly pointed out in her introduction, <laughs> I've been at I've been in I've been in local government for 30 years. I was a public prosecutor, and then I was a mayor, and then I was a deputy mayor. When I was a public prosecutor a long time ago, uh, one of the jobs we had was collecting child support. So moms who were on welfare. Uh, and the dads weren't paying. We were supposed to say custodial, non-custodial, but let's, one, the moms didn't get the money and the dads were supposed to pay. So um, we, instead of just running around, we took like five people and put them in a room. This is a, a long time ago. And said, we're going to give you access to every piece of data that the city and state and federal government can legally give you. And you're going to go find the dads and find out what's going to cause them to pay, right? Do they want their fishing licenses or their driver's licenses or whatever the case may be, right? Collections went from 900,000 to 40 million, wow. right? With no more people, right? Now, some of the dads were pretty upset, but the moms were our customers and they were really pleased, right? And so that's actually, that's the single most important experience that's driven my last three decades. I did the same thing in criminal justice, right? And, and we, w we created the first country's first integrated criminal justice system for purposes not of just prosecuting folks, but of purposes of holding the judges and everyone else accountable when people languished in jail for minor crimes because the system was just fragmented and, and, and not paying attention. And then made all, and then, and, and then it, it, like back 20 years ago, gave the reporters access to all that information in real time so they could help Help hold the system accountable, right? So every time that I brought data together in a transparent way, it's dramatically changed. I mean, not like a little bit, but dramatically changed the power. And so then when I when I came when I was working for Mike Bloomberg, I tried to set up the country's first data analytics center, but I was a little I was a little early, and um, nobody wanted to pay for it, and it was kind of a so-so, uh, frankly. But what year but, was that? Uh, that was six years ago, right? Five and a half years ago. The tools now are a lot better too, right? But, but, but that required a lot of challenging of the existing systems and the existing silos. Um, uh, and since then, I've seen, I, I've spent the last year and a half going across the country and interviewing mostly U.S., some Latin American mayors. And most of the innovative breakthroughs in data are workarounds of the existing system. We did this because we're able to get around the rules. We did this because we created a nonprofit. We did this because a private company helped us do. Right? But basically, said we're being successful because we're because we can't change the way government operates. So that 
That's my last 30 years in five minutes. So that's what kind of motivated the book as fast as I can do it. Hi, uh, my name is Brennan Nix. Uh, I'm with McKinsey and Company. Uh, and my question is uh, around the other side of the coin for citizen engagement. Uh, I think there's a lot of strong evidence that shows that when there's strong government outreach uh, and clear, concise strategy from governments that lead a top-down priority, uh, it helps involve like private stakeholders as well in the city. But my question uh, is, what, if any, role do you see uh, normal citizens being able to push uh, their governments to adopt this new operating system and kind of push that conversation forward? I thought you were going to ask a question you didn't ask. And since I'm a politician, I'm going to answer the question that I wanted you to ask. Um, so, um, so I got elected mayor of Indianapolis. In the first week, I went out to cut a ribbon on a park that had clearly been dug by my predecessor, but he, he was gone. I was in office, right? And so I went out to cut out the ribbon, expecting everybody to say thank you to their new mayor. And the people were irate, irate. And I said, what's the problem? They said, well, the basketball courts are on the side of the park where the senior citizens live, mm -hmm. and they should be on the other side of the park. You guys are tone deaf. So then I raised a bunch of money from the local philanthropy foundation to redo all our parks, and I went to a first meeting in the first neighborhood and said, what do you want in your park? Because I'd learned my lesson, right? And this guy stands up and goes, we're not park planners. How in the world should we know you should go in the park? Why don't you give us a clue, right? So um, the moral of that story is um, how... Um, uh, how, how does one in, in the public sector frame and inform the debate so that the engagement is serious and results in policy changes? How is it iterative? How is it social and the like? And, and so, um, so I've been thinking about the answer to the question that way. And then you asked, how does who get involved? Yeah, so if I am interested in, you know, understanding how, like, the suburb, I live in Oh, I'm sure it's your question. Well, Somerville's too advanced anyway, and he's a fellow here, so we can't really <laughs> criticize him. But um, so, so, so that's anecdotal, right? My story's anecdotal, and 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 you can imagine energy that would be created around a new park anyway. I I think the the issue is how do you uh, light up the community to demand that um, that there's clear metrics that they're visible and that people kind of march on City Hall one way or another um, to demand uh, more clarity and transparency, right? And, and, and I mean like real transparency, not like, you know, ex, you know, visualized Excel spreadsheets, but like real transparency. And then, and then how, and this goes to one of Emily's questions, then there are a lot of foundations around the country that uh, should be funding, community foundations, that should be funding local data literacy capacity, take advantage of that data, right, so that they can energize the folks in their communities to stand up for kind of improvement. And I, I, don't, I don't think you'll get to, right, we're, we're, to, you know, we're at this disequilibrium now, obviously, between wealthy and not so wealthy. And so it's going to take a set of intermediaries to kind of bring that up and demand that broadly. And I think it could happen. And it's happening in some places. And some of those have, Somerville is a pretty good example of the good, I think, actually. Gentleman here. Shamil Ibrahim. Can you hear me? Yeah. Shamil Ibrahim of Mid-Career Kennedy School. Uh, Professor Gosman, you mentioned about artificial intelligence and its application in New York. 
And as we know, it's, it will be based on its assumptions, decisions, on data analysis, statistics, etc. But at the same time, this data analysis and these statistics may lead artificial intelligence to very uh, weird decision or in case of the criminal justice to even some uh, ra racist decisions. What that was the case already in, in some parts of the United States. Don't you think that we overestimate artificial intelligence uh, so far and maybe it's and how would you describe what would be the best areas of uh, using artificial intelligence in urban governance right. thank you um, see I don't think artificial intelligence is the problem I think intelligence is the problem right mm -hmm. and and so um, I mean obviously the question goes to the, the very topical problem of biases in the algorithms, biases in the algorithms, which are definitely true. But the, but the problem isn't the algorithm. The problem is people and, and how the data went into the system that, they, that the algorithm trains against, right? So, so to me, the issue really is how, how do we correct for previous biases? And the algorithms could expose those biases, or they could aggravate those biases, right? And so, let's take the police situation. I mean, it, you know, like I said, I was a district attorney for a long time. <coughs> You'd be hard to make the case that every single police officer in the country is just perfectly impartial, right? Even if they're not explicitly biased, their their work could cause them to become biased in some way, right? So, so how do we understand? how they're making decisions. And, and so, and then let's take another example, right? I mean, one that you know about and that's very public, which is that in the U.S., if we use, make, it, it, w one sense we say, well, it makes sense to use previous uh, criminal records to identify future criminality. That sounds real, that sounds great. But if one of the previous criminal uh, records is conviction for marijuana, we know that those convictions are disproportionately, um, have a racial impact, right? So. Now, the answer is, do we use artificial intelligence or not? No, I'd say the question is, do we tell it to train against uh, the marijuana arrests or not, right? So I, so I think your question is a really complicated one. And the other thing, I've been trying to write about this, but I keep getting tangled up, which is New York City has this new ordinance that says that the algorithms need to be, there's a study commission designed to create transparency in the algorithms. My fear about that, so that's good, everybody's for transparency, right? So let me just, since Tony's recording this, I'm for transparency. <laughs> good. But what you don't want to do, right, is create so much noise and labor in the use of science and evidence that we abandon science and evidence to the discretion on the street without the science and evidence, right? If you say to me, I have to document every way I make a decision if I'm using an algorithm, I don't have to document it at all if I'm walking down the street and just rousting some guy. Then we've got the system out of, out of balance again. So I, I think some transparency is necessary. Some exposure of the algorithms is necessary. Um, but we need to think carefully about how we do this. And then finally, um, the, the thing that confuses me the most, I guess I'm supposed to pretend to answer your question, but rather than giving you questions back, would be at some point in time, the bots are training baby bots. Right, there's not you writing the algorithm. You're writing a, you're writing an algorithm, and the algorithm is learning. And as the algorithm is learning, it's gathering more data. Right, and so at some point in time, we actually lose the ability to control the algorithm. Right, so so all of those are points of problem, 
But I'd say the problem is we just need to think more rigorously about how bias has entered into public decision making and that how that could be aggravated or mitigated by the algorithm. Thank you, Professor Goldsmith, for sharing. Um, my name is Carolyn. I'm a second year MPA ID student. Um, and I will join San Jose Mayor Office Innovation Technology Team up here at Kennedy School. Oh, so good. I'm really good, good, good. working on their smart city initiatives, yeah. particularly. So I'm really interested in your talk today. Um, I actually have read uh, your book several times. What do you mean, you actually have read my book? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> you mean, like Tony? Or what do you mean, you actually read my book? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm very impressed by many best practices described in the book, but uh, my question is, like, right now many cities are here, and a new OS is, like, here. It's a very high standard for yeah. them. So my question is, like, for you, what is a high-level um, roadmap for these cities to achieve new OS? Or put it in another way, with limited yeah. resources, what are some initiatives that you think should mm. prioritize? Right. What's your first name? You could hire Brennan. I mean, he's, he's, he must be doing this for a business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, uh, well, I'm conflicted in answering your question because uh, one level you want to have priorities. Another level, my whole book is against um, workarounds, right? So, so I'm a little bit conflicted. The same is true. We're trying to work with Chicago on human-centered design. They just hired a person in their uh, CIO's office to concentrate, a really talented person. On. So they go, well, where, what should our priorities be? And, I, and so you can say, well, they ought to be over here. But if the purpose of human-centered design is to create a CRM system, then if, if you do it as a one-off, then you've actually not solved the problem. Um, so I, I would do it. I would answer your question two ways. One, I would change the STAT program to connect, to use be a data analytics program co-hosted by the director of the budget and the CIO, right? And we're going to use data analytics not uh, to find out the pro the predicted analytics against our problem set. So I, I would I would change the way we measure performance broadly. And the second thing I think I would do would be to look at systems where there's the most value. Like, why don't, why don't we have a mobility manager? Why aren't we managing mobility more broadly? Why aren't we using the data that we have now? And, and then third, I would connect the, those two pieces to where I could actually save money for purposes of reinvesting. So when I was in New York City in this kind of so-so effort for the Data Analytics Center, I, I, I thought OMB reported to me until they told me that I couldn't have the money. But so, but so I said, well, okay, we'll do this then we'll give a contract to, it was Accenture at the time, because you weren't there. It would have been you if you weren't there. Uh, we're giving a contract to Accenture, and then we're going to pay them on a percentage of what they save. So we're going to look at waste, fraud, and abuse, tax collections, and the like, and then we'll give them a percentage, and then we'll take the money we've saved, and we'll redirect that to social uh, services where we're not, we don't want to save money. We want to invest money, right? We want to invest money better. And, of course, OMB said, well, they'll make too much money. We can't do that. But the, but the point of that is that you could use the analytics then to go after areas where there are dollars that could, could be harvested and redirected. So I would think about the process that way. I think over there is somebody. There's one over there, too. Yeah, this Hi, um, my name is Mariah, and I'm a master in urban planning student at Harvard Graduate School Stand of Design. Up so I can see. All right, go ahead. And also a research assistant here uh, with Bloomberg uh, Cities Initiative. 
I have two questions uh, regarding municipal level IDs and implementing those systems as a form of, um, as a way to like reestablish uh, trust in the local municipality and in government in general, and also to protect immigrant and refugees uh, from the federal data system. So um, I'm currently working on a project and I'm uh, hit against two challenges. One, which is, uh, trying to tell people that have been in policy um, for years and years and years that these things matter, that these things um, are impacting their, their urban flows, that these things will um, impact the, the well-being of, you know, their um, newly arriving residents, and uh, it's just really not resonating. So I'm curious um, for um, any advice or anecdotes on how you were able to kind of bridge the gap between like analytics, data, digital, yeah. with um, people that have been in policy forever and actually have the power to implement. Um, and then I also am curious about, uh, you know, what can a mid, mid-sized city uh, do, do to actually implement a new system like this? I'm advocating for a city of uh, 100,000 okay. to do a whole, you know, new system. Yeah. How do you, how can you perceive that? Yeah. That and maybe I think they, do they turn off the air at five o'clock? No, no, we, we've got extension to six. Yeah. Yeah. How about one more question? Well, you've got one there and then Emily. Okay, so can you see from the, your peripheral vision? Is Marshall Gantz still in his office? So he's, he's the is. he's the answer. He's the answer to the first question, right? Because you can't do anything in government without a narrative, and the narrative rallies people around change, and it and it always has to be higher. Than the person caught in the than the public employee, the pub, good employees are caught in really bad systems, and and their managers, the mid managers, are even more difficult, just categorically more difficult. That's not means they're all bad; just means they're more difficult, because their job is to manage the guy, and if this guy is trying to solve your problem for Im new immigrant populations. Um, I mean, when I was in New York City, those people were actually, if those pe people, meaning the people in city government that were, were afraid to give me their good ideas for fear that their supervisors would get upset. I mean, I had like an mm. anonymous digital uh, suggestion box, and I was getting like no suggestions. I had 300,000 employees, and I get like five a week or something, and, and even if it was anonymous, they wouldn't do it. So, so I think that the narrative that creates both the demand for change and the, and the, and the authority and power to do it is, is, is really helpful. And then, what was your second question? For a small. Oh yeah, so so I think that's actually easier, because uh, cloud computing and SaaS pricing makes this stuff available in mid-sized cities. And so, if you were a leader like the city manager, or assistant city manager in a town of a hundred thousand, you could transform that place in twenty-four months. Honestly, I mean, and and all of the big providers, whether it's you know Microsoft, SAP, Oracle, they have cloud-based CRM systems with a lot of tracking material. And, and, there are, and social sentiment mining and all connected to, to smartphones. And so it's, it used to be that if you were small, you just couldn't get there. Now I actually think that you can. I mean, a great example of this in a, in a city without issue, without, with a number of issues is South Bend, Indiana, right? Really dynamic mayor, uh, great partnership with Notre Dame for training uh, interns, um, uh, using data very broadly, I mean, probably as much as really any city in the country. I mean, New York City and, and Los Angeles, San Francisco have more total resources, but just the change in the culture in South Bend has been pretty dramatic. Okay. Uh, yes.
I am a. This works. You're on. It's working. I'm a fellow researcher at the Digital Kennedy School, and I'm curious about how do you define the metrics when you have like public service cannot be geared towards profit. So sometimes you optimize a system to get the best time or the best route or to, I don't know, speed, uh, to work with the op optimization of fuel usage. And the metric should be comfort or yeah. happiness or something like this. So right. I'm, mm. I'm curious about how do you get into this metric. Yeah, so that question went to Marshall. This question goes to Mark Moore. You know, this is right in <laughs> definition of public value. So um, let me just say this, this is probably the most important question and the one that I'm not going to try to answer, right? Because this should be the threshold question, right? What are we trying to accomplish? How do we define that? Um, it's not about profit, but any one of those metrics, um, any, you know, anything you measure, you're going to get too much of. Whether, right, you're just going to, it's going to create distortions, but it's better than not measuring. You're going to have to consider, continue to iterate it. So, so I just think coming up with a definition of uh, service level agreements, what you're trying to drive, how you measure performance, and how you iterate that is the issue. And so rather than give you some simplistic answer, I just recognize that this is the fundamental question, and it's really difficult. And, you, and you're never going to get it right. You're never going to get it right. But, it, but ignoring it is a really bad thing as well. And it's particularly difficult if you have a third-party vendor in, right? So you're going to pay the vendor to do X, and you're going to say, OK, I'm a very thoughtful public, public official, so I, I hear this. Service level agreements do these three things. Then a year later, you go, oh my god, I got so much of this, and it, you stop doing this, and so you just have to keep working at it. Yeah. Uh, last question. Um, thank you. I'm Emily Middleton, a second-year MPP student uh, here at the Kennedy School. Um, I was wondering, sort of, um, what do you think is the best way to kind of organize data analytics in cities? You mentioned you try to set up a data analytics office. Lots of cities are trying to do that. Um, but do you think that could lead to a culture of sort of data, data analytics for, for the sake of it? And do you kind of envision a future where the, that sort of capabilities are dispersed throughout, um, throughout kind of departments and it's, it's just one of the core sort of skill sets of public servants? Yeah, that's a great question. So the answer is yes. Um, so I think you need, uh, in a, let's leave out the 100,000-person city for a second. I think you need, this is a, also a good last question, there needs to be a, a person in charge of data analytics uh, at a fairly high level in the government. What do you call them, chief digital officer or chief analytics officer? And um, that person needs to be prepared to answer important uh, cross-agency questions. Um, and then, uh, as they're doing in San Francisco, then that person should be an advocate for data literacy training and internal kind of training for the rest of government. Because really what you want to do is have a broad array of individuals uh, ask query questions. What if I did this? And it's not really, you know, it's not hardcore data science, but it's, okay, I've got the Tableau visualization tools in front of me. Now, what if I did this? What if I did this? What's it look like if I do this? You know, curiosity. And uh, my last New York story, when I got started in this kind of effort that didn't work very well, but didn't work badly, just didn't work very well, I, I just created a, um, uh, a group of, ch of chief operating officers from the 10 biggest agencies. And every month they would come in 
and one of them would, would be required to report on, a, on an important problem they've solved with data. In order to create kind of an e a, a evangelism around the table, oh, you did that? What if we did this, right? So, so uh, you, what you need to do is have that data group. And then, in the, you know, and there are differences just in conclusion. You know, when uh, uh, we have a fellow, Craig Campbell, who's at the New York Data Analytics Office, and Amen was there. Some of you saw Amen in my class. And um, his view was we're a service agency. I, to me, I think you need more than a service agency. You need a service agency plus uh, somebody who can cause public officials to ask the right questions. Because when we get our chief data officers together and we ask them what their number one problem is, it's that they're not getting the, the right flow of good questions. It's not that they don't have the answers, it's that they don't have the questions. So long story short, somebody high up in the, who who's, solves important data science problems, somebody high up who forms the partnerships with the universities for masters in computer science or whatever the other interns are, somebody high up in government that is responsible for the training academy, and then cascading it down as much as you can through the kind of use and query cases, and then you can kind of get the right solution, I think. Thank you for your question. Okay, so for those who have nowhere better to go, we have a reception here, and you're welcome to stay, but all of you please join me in thanking Steve and Emily for a great You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.